Take your Bibles with me this evening, please, and turn to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians 1, looking at verses 21 through 30 this evening and intending thus to finish chapter 1 together. Last time, we considered together Paul's rejoicing and assurances to the people of Philippi that the work of the gospel has not only continued but truly flourished in Paul's ministry in spite of the fact that he was in prison. He, he found opportunity to share the gospel, uh, but more than just finding the opportunity to share the gospel in the palace, more than the opportunity uh, to share the gospel to others, there was also this confidence in his situation, recognizing that through his suffering there had been an emboldenment, uh, both of those who were faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ and even among those uh, who were his enemies, to tell of the gospel, of course, those who spoke in truth, uh, to share the gospel with boldness because of the uh, testimony of Paul, those who spoke by pretense to share the gospel as they sought to add to Paul's sufferings um, by means of letting people know the things that Paul had been saying. And he, expresses in, he expressed in verse 19 that the situation at hand was leading to his salvation one way or another, either his freedom or his death. And what we're going to find today is that Paul was conflicted about his own feelings at this juncture. Not conflicted about what he was going to do with whatever days God had given him, but rather conflicted and being somewhat transparent with the church as it relates to his own desires. So let's begin this evening, and what we're going to do is we're going to start back in verse 19 for context, and then we'll read through verse 21 as we pick up uh, in our new exposition. The Bible says this in, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 19. For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ." and to die as gain. We stopped short of this very well-known and beloved verse last time uh, simply for the sake of time. And I thank God that I do not feel the need to cast any sort of uh, doubt upon the common interpretation of this wonderful verse. I've done that a couple of times already in Philippians chapter 1, cast a measure of doubt upon the common interpretation of a verse. Uh, I don't have to do that this time, and I thank the Lord for that. As long as Paul is living, he says, Paul expresses what we would understand to be the worldview upon which he builds his life. As long as I am alive, my life is for Christ, Paul says. Not just that Christ is a part of his life, but Paul's life is defined by Christ, by the labor of the gospel, by the drive of the salvation of souls, by a reflection of a godly testimony among men, consumed with the furtherance of the truth and the expression of the truth in his body. This would echo the concept which Paul presents many times in the New Testament, perhaps no better, no more clearly than that familiar verse that we find in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, where Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me 
and gave himself for me. Paul says that when he accepted Christ as a Savior, he was crucified with Christ. And indeed, as he would uh, say in the epistles, I die daily. He reckoned himself daily to be crucified with Christ, though he's still alive, but dead to his own will. His will unto himself died with Christ. Dead to his own priorities. His own priorities died with Christ. Dead to his selfish concerns. Those selfish concerns died with Christ. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, he says, I live, but not me. Christ lives in me. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. He lives, but he's determined to live by faith, to live out Christ in himself, to glory not in himself, but in the cross of Christ, to fix his eyes so firmly upon Jesus Christ that it consumes the whole of his essence. And Paul will express this idea perhaps most clearly, most thoroughly when we arrive at Philippians 3. And we'll focus upon this concept more in Philippians chapter 3. I'm not going to belabor the point this evening, though this verse is beloved to us, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. What does that mean? We're going to see that in Philippians 3. We've already alluded to it several times, both morning and evening, over the past month or so. Looking forward to it when we get there. But we see in this Paul's heart, and we aspire unto the same, that God would so fill our vision that the things of this world would melt away and Christ would be all we see that in all things we would please the Lord, that in all things Christ's power might be evident in me, that in all things I would walk worthy of that calling of Christ upon my life, that I would not set my days and my gauge of success upon the things of this world, but rather I would set my days and my gauge of success upon the things of the world that is to come, upon the commission of Christ, that he might live in me richly, that I might be constantly abiding, that above any other consideration, I consider first and foremost my disposition before my Savior. This was Paul's mindset. This was his desire. God help that it would be my own as well. That when I step into glory, when you step into glory, we do so not as one who steps into the fear of judgment, the fear of loss before the throne, but as one who, specs, uh, who steps into the expectation of reward because we have lived in such a manner before the Lord that we would desire and be fully invested in going home. To this end, Paul says not only that to live is Christ, but take note of that second bit. To die is gain. Now, there are two ideas here. The first, the one that I just expressed, that Paul recognizes that eternity is the goal of the believer, that to step from this life into eternity, which is to come, is not to take a step backward, but in every, in, in every respect, it is to take a step forward. It is to step into an existence that is free from the pains and the concerns and the struggles that come with this body of sin, the struggles against my own sinful heart, the struggle to flee against those affections and lusts that we talked about uh, last week on Sunday morning the struggles of a sin-sick world with all of the pain and the sorrow and the loss, with all of the, the, the suffering that we see around us. Eternity is the blessed hope of the believer. 
the end of the race, the consolation of the afflicted, and the promise fulfilled. I was talking to a person in the jail not long ago about the rich man and Lazarus. And within the scope of that parable, you have Lazarus, of course, who is a poor man who eats uh, the, the crumbs from the, the table, the rich man's table, and, and the dogs lick his wounds. And then you have the rich man who consoles himself with the pleasures of this life. And within the context of that, that parable, which some would say is not a parable, uh, and for good reason, based upon the nature of the interpretive uh, method and such, you find Lazarus who consoled himself, the consolation of his suffering, the consolation of his poverty, the consolation of his weakness in this life was the hope of the life that is to come. And that is the blessed hope of every believer. To that end, from that perspective, to die is gain. If I have lived this life for Christ, if I am in Christ, to die is gain. When I have a perspective of this world that is around me and I see it for what it is, to die is gain. From a hope perspective and from a deliverance perspective. And we perhaps see this concept, deliverance from this body of sin and from the battle, in Paul's conflict as it crops up in the next verses. Paul has a hope in the things that are to come because he's run his race with patience. And so he knows that the end of that race will be rewards. But perhaps we also see a little bit of conflict in him because he knows that the end of the race is also deliverance. We know that he's been struggling with a thorn in the flesh for any number of years. We know that he's sitting in house arrest. He's been shipwrecked. He's been stoned. He's been left for dead. He's received 40 stripes, minus one, several times. The man's body is probably quite worn. The man's probably somewhat tired. So he says in verse 22, But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I won't not. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Now there is some measure of debate as to what Paul is saying in verse 22. Some believe it means if I live in the flesh, it will cost me my labor, much care, much effort, much sorrow, much difficulty. Some believe it means if I live in the flesh, then I can continue to bear fruit. This is the fruit of my labor that I continue in the flesh. Thus, I'm still building rewards. Thus, I'm still bearing fruit. Thus, I'm still able to be a blessing to others. And I think both of these, the verse is somewhat ambiguous. The Greek is somewhat ambiguous. Both of them, I think, uh, fall within the scope of of a, a proper interpretation of the text. I like that second one I gave you better. If I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. If I live in the flesh, then I get to continue to build rewards. If I live in the flesh, I get to be a, uh, continue to be a blessing, not just to myself, but to you, Church of Philippi. I get to continue to minister to you. And we'll see that that, that flavor does come out as Paul continues through the text, this idea that his constraint, his desire to stay in the flesh uh, is a desire that's rooted in ministry, in the, the continued benefit that he can have to others through his life and through his ministry. 
It seems that Paul is fundamentally saying that as long as he lives in the flesh, he will continue to keep Christ at the center. This means that there will be rewards that continue to be built. This means that there will be beneficial, uh, uh, it will be beneficial to the churches unto whom he ministers and that more souls presumably would continue to be saved. And yet Paul says, what I shall choose, I won't not. He says, if I did have the choice, I don't know what choice I'd make. Verse 23 and 24. For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. Paul says he's torn in his emotions. And take note here, he is speaking emotionally, not theologically, not practically, not on knowledge, but on desire. Paul nowhere within this passage insinuates that he's going to take control over whether he lives or dies. Paul acknowledges what believers in every generation have understood, that it is not for a man to take upon himself the power over life and death. Man is sacred because he bears the image of God. That does not mean that we look like God in the sense of hands and feet and eyes and mouths and ears and such, but rather that we bear the same fundamental structure as the Godhead, the structure which animals don't bear, this tripartite being. God is three persons in one. We call it the Trinity, short for the triunity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Three individual persons functioning as one God. So too, I am three persons in one man, body, soul, and spirit. Three individual aspects, each with their own characteristics and yet functioning only as one. So that I cannot function apart from myself. I, my body can't function apart from my soul and my body and soul can't function apart from the spirit. We are one. It makes up me. I am me, one, and yet I am made up of three parts, body, soul, and spirit. Murder and suicide, which suicide is really just self-murder in a biblical sense, takes place when a man claims the authority to take a life, whether that's someone else's life or his own, which God has not given to him. When this happens, the murderer defiles the image of God and man. As a matter of fact, in the days of Noah, after, uh, after the flood of Noah, when God instituted uh, government, and he says, if a man shed man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed, it wasn't just man, was it? If an animal were to shed man's blood, that animal's blood must be shed as well. Why? Because that animal, just like a man, has defiled the image of God. So he must die. The murderer defiles the image of God and man, and this is so vile to our Lord in the Old Testament, so blasphemous to God that, that one would defile the image of God, which is sacred, that he would die himself. He was called to be killed by the hand of government. And notice this, that government has been, had been in the Old Testament, still has been as, as we see it related in the New Testament, Romans 13, given the authority delegated by God to take the life of another as a natural extension of enforcing God's moral justice. In other words, God has the authority over life and death. God has delegated a, a subset of that authority over life or death to government so that government functions as an extension of God's authority delegated by God himself to take a life on the basis of enforcing God's moral justice. 
So government has the right to put a man to death for the legal offenses, and this is not murder. This is not murder. It's an exercise of God-given delegated authority. Now, that being said, it's entirely possible that a government would abuse this authority. The government has in every generation since the beginning, right? And this is also evil, and this is wrong, and would constitute murder in its own right as governments go beyond God's delegated authority. And yet, unless that government has an authority over it, an earthly authority over it, that is where we must simply wait for the authority of God on Judgment Day to deal with that government, and he will. He will deal with those leaders. Thus, all of the Proverbs and Psalms calling kings to fear God, to rule in the fear of God. But there is a very distinct difference, believer, between government putting a man to death for a moral injustice, which is their delegated right to do, the authority given by God to governments, and a man taking the life of another man or taking his own life at his own discretion. This is an authority which God has never delegated to a man which constitutes a blasphemy against God by desecrating that which God has made in his image. You say, well, pastor, what about in the Old Testament, the avenger of blood? The avenger of blood gets to kill uh, the one if, if that person doesn't make it to a city of refuge. He gets to kill the one who, who you know, shed the blood of his relative. Yes, delegated by government, delegated by God's authority. Man has not been, as a rule, given that right. Consequently, as we consider this idea of desecrating or defiling the image of God and man, this principle goes well beyond just murder. To disrespect one, to disrespect another, to disrespect oneself, sexual abuse, pornography, sexual promiscuity, there's a defilement there of the dignity of man, isn't there? When men treat women or women treat men as simply an a object to be desired, there is a, a lack of human dignity in that interaction whereby you are no longer interacting with a person or that, 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 that one is no longer interacting with the other on the basis of human dignity in the image of God and man. They are treating them as an object for consumption. It's not murder, but it defiles the image of God and man, does it not? Physical abuse, violence, open hostility. Emotional abuse, verbal violence, anger, these sorts of hostilities. These things, to varying degrees, also offend the image of God and man and are thus offensive to God. So Paul is not here admitting to harboring any sort of suicidal thoughts when he says he's in a straight betwixt the two. He's not sitting there saying, am I going to take my life or am I going to stay? He's not, that, that's not what's happening here. Now that does not mean that such a temptation has never crossed the mind of a godly man. Humans can become very discouraged, can they not? And that discouragement can give way to despair if we are not careful. These things happen in these bodies that are made of flesh. But despair is never a place you have to be. And if you find yourself, if you have ever found yourself in, and, and you anticipate the possibility of finding yourself in a place of despair, 
you need to seek unto help. Because God didn't put you in that place. God doesn't want you in that place, and no child of God ever needs to be in that place. If you're there, there's something spiritually wrong, and it can be fixed. Paul here is being very transparent, however, with the church about how he's feeling emotionally. He says he's torn in desire. Again, he's not torn as to whether or not he's going to act on this. That, that's not a question here that Paul raises. He simply says he's torn in desire because he wants to be with the Lord. Maybe you've been there before. Not suicidal thoughts, I'm not saying that, but you simply, maybe it's a rough week and you just kind of get a little homesick for heaven. You kind of say, man, wouldn't it just be nice to go home? Wouldn't it be nice to not have to deal with this or that, to not have to struggle? Maybe you had a, a really tough week where you've been, where it's been obvious that you have tremendous deficiencies in yourself. And, and you just, you say, Lord, I, I'm trying and I love you, but I'm failing. I can't wait until the day I get to go home and just no more sin, no more, no, no more failings. Or maybe it's interaction with other people and it's been a really bad week with other people and you're, uh, you're stressed and you're tired because you've been dealing with other people and they're not listening or you're not listening or whatever it might be and you just say, you know what, won't it be nice when we can just go home and just not be around this anymore? Maybe it's health. You had a really tough week health-wise and you're struggling in your body and it's not working the way it's supposed to and you say, ah, I just can't wait until I get to go home and get that resurrected body that's no longer struggling in the flesh. And these aren't suicidal thoughts or anything of the sort. This is just getting a little bit homesick for heaven. And Paul says here that he wants to be with the Lord, knowing that the end of the battle will be a great day of joy, understanding that the finish line is getting closer and longing for that heavenly home, which is far better, obviously, right? To be with Christ, which is far better, Paul says in verse 23. He wouldn't just have to, or, or even have the privilege of living for Christ at that point. He would no longer just have the earnest of his inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. He would step into glory. Yet knowing that it's far more needful, and he says to you, to the church of Philippi, to those unto whom he's writing, that he remain. I don't know exactly what Paul is referencing there. Is it just concern as to the sorrow that they would feel if he were to die? So he says, it's more needful for you that I hang around because of the sorrow you'd go through if I passed. Is it the need for the church to be encouraged? The fact that the believers are being emboldened by his suffering, so it's more needful that he remain because of the, uh, because of the emboldenment that they're going through? Is it that there's something more direct, something more specific that Paul has on his mind, which compels him to want to maybe get to that church one last time, feeling as though there's something else that he needs to do with them or for them before his time? Of these things, I do not fully know. But I don't know that it really matters. Because I don't think the point of any of this is actually for Paul to place himself on the couch and assess his own mental and emotional state. I don't think he is using the Church of Philippi as an emotional sounding board here just to vent his own problems. And I don't think he's venting his frustrations either. I think much to the rather, Paul is getting transparent here specifically so that he can set an example 
to the church of what it means to bear the mind of Christ. We're going to dig into the weeds of this idea significantly more next week. But if I give you a sneak preview, verse 4 of chapter 2 says, Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. So Paul is teaching them something here. I have what I want, and I have what you need. And even in this great thing, death or life, right, the end of my ministry to be with Christ or the continuing of suffering, he says, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. He's setting an example here of how he, in his own life, even in this situation, when he's far from them and he's under house arrest, is seeking to, uh, in, to, to assume the mind of Christ to place the church of Philippi however many thousands of miles or hundreds of miles or however far away it was from Rome, placing them ahead of himself in his own actions under house arrest in Rome, thinking of that church of Philippi and what they need of him more than what he needs of him, more than what he wants of him. That's the idea here. Paul doesn't want to be sitting in prison, though his ministry is still being effective. Paul doesn't want to keep struggling in his body. Within Paul's own heart, he wants to go home and be with Christ. But Paul says, that isn't really what matters. Because to abide is more needful for you, Church of Philippi. And Paul is willing, desirous to assume the mind of Christ and thus to set aside himself for the sake of their need. This is what Christ did for Paul. And Paul was willing to do this for them. And it is this thought that I hope you will begin to cultivate as we go throughout our week this week. Thinking through this idea, Paul says, I'm a straight betwixt the two because I have what I would want, but then I have what you need. And that is more needful. What's better would be to be with Christ. What's needful is to stay for your sake. So Paul says in verses 25 and 26, And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith, that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. So Paul says, having this confidence that it is better for you that I abide, knowing this, that it's more needful for you that I abide, I shall abide and continue with you all for the furtherance and joy of faith. For this purpose, Paul says, that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Christ Jesus for me by my coming to you again. See what Paul is saying here? He's saying, I have what I want, which is naturally to be with the Lord, but I know what is more needful for your faith and for your rejoicing, which is for me to remain. And because of this, regardless of what I want emotionally, what I really want is what God wants. I want the mind of Christ, and the mind of Christ dictates that I remain. What a mindset. What if you and I had this mindset? What if every day of the week... What if every need that we heard about among the brethren, what if every opportunity that we had where we were weighing the option of do I stay or do I go? Do I help or do I not? What's needful for me? What's needful for them? Boy, yeah, that would really be helpful to them, but, but this would be nice for me. I could spend my time doing this or spend my money doing that. And every single time we said, mind of Christ, 
look on the things of others above myself. What would, what would our church look like if we lived that way? Paul sets aside what he wants in order to do what is best for those he loves, and this is the very essence of love, is it not? He is exemplifying, even in himself, the essence of a Christ-mindedness that he desires to see in them. Paul is calling them to be Christ-minded, and he's showing them what it means by telling them his own mind and his own struggle and then his own reservation and determination that he will do what's best for them. So now that they know how Paul has set his mind upon their best rather than his own desires, he exhorts them to do the same. Verse 27, Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. The word conversation here is found only two times in the New Testament, not the typical word that is translated conversation, uh, meaning deportment. Typically when we say conversation, I, I would ask you, what does the word conversation mean? And we would make it very clear that when we say, let your conversation be as becometh godliness, we're not talking about simply the words that I speak, right? A conversation is the entire manner in which I present myself. It is my deportment. It is my testimony. Uh, when I communicate with someone... Statistics say that some, something akin to 95, 98% of your communication is nonverbal. You have what you say, and then you have the manner in which you say it. You have your tone. You have your posture. Do I have an open posture? Do I have a closed posture? When you're sharing the gospel with someone, you want to be careful with some of those things. You don't want to be sharing the gospel like this. It's a very closed posture, not open. It's kind of threatening. It's, 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 it's not very pleasant. It doesn't show that you're open. It doesn't show that you're being communicative. It shows that you're, you're, you're feeling a little bit contentious or hostile. One pocket, one hand in the pocket, two hands in the pockets. These things communicate something. When I was in policing, anytime we would do interviews, stand three feet away, gun side away, watch their fists. The first indication that there's something wrong is often going to be, because they're thinking, right, as you're talking to them, if there's a problem, they're thinking through, what am I going to do next? Look for a clenched fist. You start seeing that, fist, fan, uh, that fist clench, you take a step back. Because you can see something going through their mind. Nonverbal communication, very important stuff, right? Uh, we pick up on these cues all the time without even knowing it. Uh, the, the way that a person speaks, the way that a person, the way a person's posture, a person's deportment, these things. Okay, so Paul says, let your conversation be as it becometh godly, uh, the gospel. And typically speaking, that word conversation means deportment. That's not what this word explicitly means here. This word speaks specifically to a manner in which, in which one lives as a citizen the manner of living up to one's responsibilities in society. As Paul would use it here, he's speaking of the calling of Christ. He's speaking of the Christian society. He's speaking of you as a member of the kingdom of Christ. Let your conversation be as it becomes a member of the kingdom of God. If you are a kingdom citizen, if you are a citizen of that heavenly city, live like it. 
That's specifically the idea here. Live up to the charter of the gospel. Live up to the charter of the calling of Christ. Live up to the kingdom of God. Knowing, Paul says, that I'm set to see you, that I am devoted to your care, Paul says. He says to them that for their part, they would live in a manner that is becoming of the gospel. Regardless of whether he's ever able to see them again, come to them or not, that he would hear of how they're doing. And that he would hear, what he would hear is that they are standing fast in one spirit, striving together in one mind for the faith of the gospel. See, because there was a man, Epaphroditus, who had come and he had given a report. And what he had heard is that their conversation was not as it became the gospel of Christ. They were not standing fast in one spirit. There was division among them. They were not with one mind striving together for the face of the gospel. There was some disunity within their midst. They were faltering in like-mindedness and in Christ-mindedness, in unity and in purity. And so Paul says, just as I am setting aside what I want for you, just as I am harnessing my own desires to be with Christ and I'm, I'm, I'm doing everything I can for your sake, how should you act one toward another in that church of Philippi? If I can do it from Rome under house arrest and set myself aside for you, what can you be doing for one another there in Philippi? He calls them to think as he is thinking. Set aside what you want for what your loved ones need. Live as the heavenly citizens that you are. Live perhaps even more, more specifically, live as the church. You have this local church there. Let your, let your behavior, your, your, your citizen behavior, be as it becomes the gospel of Christ in your local assembly. Just be unified and strive together. And not just unified, but also as we read bold. Verse 28. And in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you salvation and that of God. A part of this unity and determination in the gospel is boldness, that they would not be afraid of those who will oppose their strong and eager stand, that their determination to spread the gospel would override their fears. We're called by Christ to spread the gospel with boldness, are we not? We are warned that this boldness will come at the po with the possibility of persecution. We are told that to stand for the faith will put us on the wrong side of the gods of this world. And so to stand for the truth will be to stand against the very elements that the unbelieving world loves. And as we see prominently in the current culture, in the current climate that we live today, when people's idols are combated, are threatened by the word of God, they become angry. Sometimes they become violent. They seek to silence the truth that they may maintain their illusions and their idols. And we stand nonetheless. We tell nonetheless. We endure the shame. We endure the mockery. We endure the persecution for the sake of the gospel. And the world looks at this and they see it as self-destructive. An evident token of perdition. Perdition meaning uh, um, destruction. It's an evident token of perdition. These people are crazy. They are self-destructive. 
because they're not, they're, they're willing to stand against this flow of the world. But we see it as the very foundation of our calling in Christ. A calling which Paul speaks to in verses 29 and 30. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. Having the same conflict which ye saw in me, and now here to be in me. Accepting the gospel comes with many promises. The promise of eternal life, the promise of the indwelling Holy Spirit who will illuminate our understanding to the gospel, convict our hearts of sin, bring chastening when we walk in error, compel a love within us for the brethren as well as for others, empower us to do the work of the ministry. But another promise of the gospel is the promise that the world will hate you. Not necessarily always an emotional abhorrence, but a rejection, right? That word hate meaning to place lower in value or favor. And notice he says here, having the same conflict which he saw in me and now here in me. What conflict is that? I am in a strait betwixt the two. Having a desire to depart and to be with the Lord, and yet to remain is more needful for you. He says you're going to have that same conflict within you. See, because unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on his name, but also to suffer for his sake. And in that day when you are suffering for his sake, you're going to have that desire to depart. And yet, what will be most needful for you? I'm setting an example for you, church, because you might very well find yourself there too. You might very well find yourself in that place where you just want to go home where you're tired and you don't want to do this anymore and you have a desire to depart and yet to remain is more needful. I've been there. Now, the, the idea that the world, the promise that the world will reject you, it doesn't always mean suffering. But it could mean suffering, couldn't it? And this suffering is a part of the gospel. It is not just given to us, Christian, on, be, on the behalf of Christ to believe in him. It is also given unto us to suffer for his sake. Jesus would say in John 15, verses 18 through 27, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. Remember that word meaning to reject or to place lower in favor or value. If ye were of the world, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of this world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. If I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not had sin. But now they have no cloak for their sin. He that hateth me, hateth my father also. If I had not done among them the works which none other man did. They had not had sin, but now have they both seen and hated both me and my Father. But this cometh to pass, that the, world, uh, that the word might be fulfilled that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. And ye also shall bear, bear witness, because ye have been with me from the beginning. The rejection of the world, the rejection of you by the world, 
Whatever persecution the world might bring upon you for the sake of the gospel, rejection that the world might levy upon you for the sake of the gospel, it is not a rejection of you. When you're sharing the gospel, that fear of rejection that is within you, we talked about that a little bit last week, uh, that, that, that reality that you're not the only one that harbors some fears or some, some inhibitions as it relates to sharing the gospel. But make no mistake, that, that, that rejection that you can experience they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting Christ in you. In this world, that can mean any number of things, right? That can mean you lose some friends. That can mean you're alienated from some family. Did not Jesus also say in Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 and 35, Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I, am, I came not to send peace but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father and a daughter against her mother and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's foes shall be they of his own household. The world's rejection of your calling to spread the gospel might divide you from your loved ones. The world's rejection of your calling to spread the gospel might bring persecution. You might lose job opportunities. You might be harmed physically. They might even take your life. But believer... Can I expect the bountiful blessings of the gospel and not be willing to assume upon myself its shame? Is that reasonable? Is it reasonable to assume all the benefits of the gospel without also assuming the, the consequences that might come with it? You long to know the power of the gospel, but are you willing to endure the suffering that might accompany it? Jesus said in Luke 14, verses 26 through 33, if any man come unto me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Remember, hate not meaning emotional loathing, meaning to place lower in value or favor. If you do not place these things in your life, these, these relationships, even your own life, lower in value and favor than Christ, you cannot be his disciple. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, sitteth not down first and counteth the cost, whether he hath sufficient to finish it? Lest haply, after he hath laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all that behold it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to make war against another king, sitteth not down first and consulteth whether he be able with 10,000 to meet him that cometh against him with 20,000. Or else while the other is yet a great way off, he sendeth an ambassage and desireth conditions of peace. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. No man builds a tower without first factoring in the costs. What will, what will it cost in money? What will it cost in time? What will it cost in manpower? What will it cost in, in lives if, if uh, it's a really big tower? And then when he commits to it, he commits knowing what it could cost him. No man goes to war without first factoring in the cost. What will it cost in money? What will it cost in time? What will it cost in manpower? What will it cost in lives? And then he commits to it knowing what it might cost him. No man can truly follow Jesus who has not committed to Jesus in his heart. He may not know all the costs. You don't have to know all the costs. He may not know 
all of what the gospel will ask him. Most of us don't understand the costs. Most of us, when we submitted to the gospel, did not understand all of the costs that the gospel might ask of us. But he has counted the cost in his heart. He may not understand each and every cost, but what he has done is said, I don't know what all the costs will be, but Jesus is worth it. I'm in. And he has judged Jesus Christ to be worthy of that price. Because for who we are in Christ, it is not just given unto us to believe in his name. It is also given unto us to suffer for his sake. And this is why we just cannot afford to be distracted by selfishness. There is no time, there is no place, there is no context within which these things have a home. There's work to be done, and we need to be doing it. Paul makes it clear that this is the same struggle which he has been fighting. He isn't asking them to do something which he has not done himself. He's sitting in prison for the gospel. He's counted the cost. He is in, in this straight betwixt the two, and he's compelling them unto a position where they may be in that straight betwixt the two as well. And he tells them that he will continue to do this thing for their sakes because he loves them. And he understands what is at stake. Quick note here before we move on to our application. At the beginning of chapter 1, I had mentioned as it relates to verses 5, 6, 7, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. And within that context, I said that the, the, the context lends itself to the idea that this fellowship in the gospel and this work that's being done, that this is their contributions to Paul. The, the book lends itself to that, and I don't back down from that. However, there is an argument to be made from verses 27, 28, 29, 30, this exhortation unto the gospel. There's, there's a precedent there that can make an, the, the other interpretation, that the fellowship in the gospel is them laboring in the gospel, is um, them sharing the gospel, and that the work that has begun in them that God will continue is, is the work of their boldness. and their, there, There's good reason within these verses to argue for that, that interpretation. So that interpretation is still valid. You hear a preacher preaching it. These verses lend themselves nicely to that, that idea. Obviously, Paul is exhorting them in fellowship, in, the, in sharing the gospel. In, in being willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel, in having that same conflict which is in him, in the possibility of, of being arrested, in, in the, the, the possibility of having this desire to depart but needing to stay, which is more needful. All of those things that Paul is going through, he's setting, setting an example, recognizing that they could be in that same place and he is showing them how, he's, he's paving the path for them. So one could easily argue from these verses saying, well, see the context at the beginning of the chapter, the context at the end of the chapter, this is the fellowship of the gospel. So that is there as well. I do not back down from my interpretation. I think that as a whole, as the book stands, it's the most likely interpretation, but this is where that other argument could be made and made nicely. All right, with that, Three exhortations for you this evening. Exhortation number one, be yielded. 
For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is the mindset of Paul. The determination that he will glorify God in his body because he has been bought with a price. The first battle we all face when it comes to obedience and courage is the battle in the mind unto yieldedness. What are you holding back? What am I holding back? Can you honestly say with Paul this evening, for me to live is Christ? I think we can all honestly say to die is gain for we who are in Christ. But can you say that first bit, for me to live is Christ? What's standing between me and being able to confidently quote that verse for myself? the hope of our salvation, the joy of our Lord, the redemption of the body of sin, the eternal life, we can, we can get behind that. But remember that the glorious reality of to die is gain is found at the end of the path for me to live as Christ. Are you walking that path today? Have you assumed the crucified mindset? And I say it this way because as it relates to yieldedness, we are speaking about a mindset We're speaking about an entire way in which I view the world. When I look at a decision and I say, for me to live is Christ, and I say, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. When I have that perspective in stepping into a decision, when I have that perspective stepping into uh, how am I going to spend my money? How am I going to spend my time? How am I going to spend my efforts? What am I going to say? What am I going to do? Where am I going to go? What am I going to think? It fundamentally changes life, does it not? It fundamentally changes the direction that I go. It's about how you look at this world and the things in it and how you interact with it. It's not as much about your level of victory here, yieldedness. It's about your mindset. But let's get deep into the heart motive, shall we? Are you living out of your own selfishness in mind? Expecting what you want, demanding what you want, being inflexible, unrelenting to the needs of others, judging others based upon your own standards and perceptions. Are your expectations and efforts and desires directed toward yourself or toward others? Are you yielded? Or have you kept it all for yourself? Are you living a crucified life as the fruit of the Spirit manifests in you? Are you yielded? Paul's direct application of this principle was that he, for the sake of his brethren, was willing to set aside his own desires because his life was not his own. He served for others. He lived for others. And your life is not your own if you are in Christ. Your life is Christ's. And if you have the faith to receive it, your life does not just belong to Christ, but your life belongs to one another. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. I belong to you, and you belong to me. And this is a part of counting the cost of following Christ. And naturally, unambiguously, it's a cost that is above all things absolutely worth it, is it not? I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither hath come into the heart of man what God hath prepared for them that love him. We don't even know what we have waiting for us. 
but we know that it's going to be significantly greater than anything we could ever imagine, exceeding abundantly above all we could ask or think. And so, though it's a yoke, though it's a burden for me to live as, uh, as Christ and to die as gain, I am crucified with Christ. Present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable sacrifice, uh, reason, which is your reasonable service, excuse me. It's a, it's a yoke. It's a burden. But what did our Savior say? My yoke is easy. My burden is light when compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. It is, however, a faith proposition nonetheless, is it not? Are you yielded this evening? Exhortation number two, be obedient. Let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Jesus Christ. Live in a manner befitting your citizenship in the kingdom of God. Live in a manner befitting your part in this body of Christ, in this local body. Yielding yourself in mind does not always mean victory in body, does it? Again, we'll see this clearly as we get to Philippians 3. Paul speaks of his mindset, of his mindset of yieldedness. And then as it relates to obedience, he says, not as though I have already attained, neither were already perfect, right? So he's yielded in mind. And yet, as far as the fullness of that realization in his life, he had not already attained, but he seeks after, right? And that's the question for you. Are you following after? Are you being obedient? Are you growing? Are you waking up each day putting on the armor of God? Are you functionally living out the calling of Christ upon us? Does the practical day-to-day -day reflect a heart of obedience to God? Not that you never fail, not that you don't struggle, but you follow after. We spoke this morning in Sunday school of that idea of automating our worship, right? And the, some of the ways that we reflect worship, some of the ways that we have chosen within our particular body to uh, manifest elements of God's worth in the way we dress, in the music we sing, and how we sing that music, uh, in, in the preparations that we make, in the manner in which we give. And so we see these elements of worship, are those true in you? Is it, is, is it worship? The Bible speaks to loving your neighbor. Are you doing it? The Bible speaks to loving for, praying for, blessing our enemies. Are you doing it? We spoke about contentment a couple of weeks ago in 1 Timothy. Do you have it? Are you seeking unto it? We speak today about sharing the gospel. Are you doing it? Are we standing fast in one spirit? Are we with one mind striving together? Are we putting others above ourselves? Are we investing in one another? This is the mind of Christ. This is the mind of Christ. Does the gospel shine in us? Does the gospel shine through us? Are we operating in consistency with the things we claim to believe? Be yielded. Be obedient. Number three, be courageous. The Christian life is not without its perils. 
not without its fears. Whether that be sharing the gospel verbally, whether that be simply living out our faith, speaking to that friend, that family member, that neighbor, standing up for the things in which we believe, having the faith to rest upon the promises of the word of God when everything within you desires to trust yourself, seeking to God's solution when there's a perfectly acceptable world solution right down the road. It's not just given to us in this life to believe on Christ's name, believer. It's also given unto us to suffer for his sake. This doesn't mean you go looking for suffering. And in this country, by God's grace, there's very few times where a stand for the gospel is going to mean uh, uh, tremendous and abiding sacrifices. But do you have the courage to accept that risk? Have you counted the cost to speak when you need to speak, to act when you need to act, to let your light so shine before men? The world needs to know what you know. We know that, right? The world is in a bad way today. We heard testimony this morning uh, from Hope of her desire to reach those in, in her school and the conflict there because of the nature of, of the age in which we live. Hopeless people all around us. The world needs to hear what we have. Most will never come to accept the gospel. Many will scorn us even for the thought. But are we willing to carry that cross for the sake of the gospel? Are we willing to carry the cross, not just of sharing the gospel, but of serving one another, of loving one another, of looking every man not on his own things, but on the things of others? You're yielded. You're obeying then will you be courageous? Will you step out? Will you do what you need to do? Will you trust the Lord with the results? This is the call for us this evening. Be yielded. Be obedient. Be courageous. Unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on his name, but also to suffer for his sake. Let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. One layer up from that. For me to live as Christ, to die as gain. Do you have that layer? Have you moved to the next layer? How about the next one? Where are you along this journey? Yieldedness, obedience, courage. Where do you need to go from here? Let's allow the Spirit of God to work in our hearts to keep us moving forward. Let's allow the Word of God to forge in us the determination to have the mind of Christ. Because next week, we're going to be confronted with it on a whole new level. A whole new level of Christ-mindedness. A whole new level of like-mindedness. A whole new level, a whole new calling upon us on how we ought to interact one with another. But we're not going to, never going to do it until we're yielded unto it. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.